0: podcast is brought to you by filled with pop culture adulation and ultra hip monologues. A journey filled with orgasmic soundtracks and unnerving violence. A journey filled with sadistic miscreants and badass heroines. A journey filled with devastating loss and unimaginable triumphs. It's a journey filled with nerve-jangling moments and breathtaking visuals. It's a journey through the vast and ultra cool filmography known as the Tarantinoverse. just how much of this universe do you truly know come with us as we take a deeper dive into the tarantino cinematic universe so steal your mind and bolster your nerves because your journey begins now Welcome all you QT faithful to your 7th Tarantino Bible Study, where each month we sit down and take an intense look at one of the major scenes from our movie of the month. I am your host, the Reverend Scott K, and it is my pleasure to once again welcome back the most cage-tastic fucking podcaster on the planet the host of the Caged In podcast, Coppola Connections, Petros Petsilivas. And together, we will be taking a deeper dive into the gospel of Tarantino as we turn to the book of Jackie Brown, Chapter 18, The Money Exchange, Lewis and Melanie Scene. That's a mouthful. So welcome back, Mr. and M.A.
1: Tarantino, be with you always may he be with you too my, my good brother scott thank uh, you thank you thank you for having me back it's an absolute pleasure especially to talk about a film i said is massively underrated even though i hadn't one of the things i realized when i watched it again recently was you know what i haven't watched this in years so <laughs> it, was, it was a joy it was a joy to to watch it again it, and kind it of, really is a lot of fun to watch this
0: movie But before we jump into it, you, you, my friend, I mean, when people hear this, this is going to be June. So this is like two months down the road that we're recording. But right now, in April, as we record this, we are eight days away from a movie you already went to see. We met you, I met you, and my old partner met you when we used to do our Nicolas Cage podcast. You are... And I mean, no disrespect to anyone else, but you are the King of the Cage podcast. (laughs) You are this close to being in his orbit as he likes Saturn, since that's the name of his company. Uh, You are this close to being one of the rings of Saturn in the universe of Cage. You've been at a press junket for the unbearable weight of massive talent. Who knows, by the time this is... Heard you may be his. Uh, you may be a chauffeur or a driver for him. You don't know where this <laughs> is going to lead for you. Too much when this okay. actually airs. I might be looking back and sending this out on socials, being like, "You got to listen." I interviewed this guy who's now Nicolas Cage's best man at his fifth wedding or tenth wedding. You may christen his new child. That thing, aren't they pregnant? If I'm not mistaken, him and yes. his new missus. Yeah, 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 so yeah, there yeah. you go. Maybe he'll maybe he'll name his next child if it's a boy, Petros Cage. Oh, oh, or no. would it be Petros Coppola? Right. It would be technically Petros. Coppola yeah, well, because uh, it's Coppola last name. Hey, or I'd does he be- name his last kids Cage? Do they have the last name of Cage or does he just used it as his obviously stage name?
1: I think it is a stage name. Like uh yeah, I believe I believe it is even though his son is kind of has a double barrel, like uses the the, the Coppola cage as like a Double barrel surname for, yeah, that's, yeah, some Western. But again, I'm not sure if he uses the cage for reasons for name recognition. Maybe, <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Are the,
0: you the, thinking what? about maybe changing your name legally to Cage, Petros Cage? I think maybe that could get on his radar
1: too. No, I think that would be like a step. Too far, and I think like me, it like it's when just I a step of you being
0: outside his bushes. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't want to give off that vibe that like, do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm, sifting through his garbage and finding, oh, oh, he had, he had, you macaroni and <laughs> cheese for dinner on Tuesday, or do you know what I mean? Like, oh, he's, he's past due on a bill or something like that. I don't want, I don't want to know any. <laughs> he of that. shouldn't be anymore. Did <laughs> all no.
0: those movies to pay it off? He should be in the clear by now. Yeah, yeah I think he is very much, very much in the in the black. And no it's time to open your Tarantino Bibles to the book of Jackie Brown, chapter 18. The reason I brought you on is obviously you're going to be a special guest again later on down the road. I'm not going to tell anybody what episode it'll be, but you are going to be another special guest. You did my True Romance episode, again, grateful. But when we were talking about that, we talked about uh, your favorite movies, and I remember you saying that you had Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown in your little precocious hands one day when you were going to spend your yes. mom's <laughs> pocket money. And you didn't know which one you were going to pick, so I figured, well, we've already surpassed Pulp Fiction. Why not Jackie Brown? And why not one of the great scenes that Tarantino has put together? You know, this is obviously a movie that uh, he adapted from Elmore Leonard. Amazing book called Rum Punch. Contrary to popular belief, Jackie Brown isn't Tarantino's only adapted screenplay. His other is from Dusk to Dawn, which he adapted from a story written by Robert Kurtzman. He expands upon the dialogue in this film, which is amazing. You know, I mean... Great prose writer that Elmer Leonard is. To have Tarantino then take his words and just like expand upon them and bring his own color to them made this movie just the top notch movie that it is. Even Elmer, it's Elmer Leonard's favorite adaptation that he's had out there before he passed. And not only that, but this scene when you're watching the movie, you you know Tarantino's going to throw something that is a Tarantino or looks like a Tarantino thing into the film. And you're not sure where it happens. Well, where it happens is the money exchange scene where we get three possible looks at it. So we get three point of views. We start with Jackie Brown. We go to the second one, which is Louis and Melanie, and we finish with Max Cherry. Yeah. And they and they're all go through together beautifully, especially when you get to then see them in the chunks they put them at. But the reason I picked this one instead of the whole thing, because we could spend almost an entire podcast episode (laughs) on just the money exchange itself because of how intricate and how well shot it is and how well acted it is and the whole shebang. But it is that moment where where he puts his stamp of, yes, that I'm adapting. And it's the only film he's ever adapted. I'm adapting this novel from one of my favorite writers who is, you know, a big influence in the movies he makes and writes. But I'm going to put my stamp that you know that, yes, it may be an Elmore Leonard novel that I'm adapting, but it's still a Quentin Tarantino movie. And I think that's huge because another Elmore Leonard movie I love is Out of Sight, starring George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez. I absolutely love that. And Ving Rhames is in it. But it does feel like an Elmore Leonard novel where this doesn't feel like an Elmer Lennon album. I mean, obviously, you know, we got the characters and stuff, but it definitely feels... If people didn't know that he adapted this, I guarantee you, you could definitely... People would say, no, Jackie Brown's one of his. Like, he wrote... It's all his story idea, the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Well, one of the things I find fascinating, and especially, I I don't want to... Well, I probably briefly should talk about, like, the whole film. Like, is the fact that, like you say, yeah, it does feel like it could easily be just another... Quentin Tarantino film it very much like it feels like it's the cousin to Pulp Fiction or like it's just almost like a a sister film it's all all about these kind of LA scumbags and kind of like these crisscrossing stories but and it's only this kind of sequence we're talking about that really does lean into the Tarantino isms of the non-linear whereas like the rest of it is played really straight and you kind of like the the way it kind of drifts to the characters is so I don't like fluid and natural. Like you kind of, you, yeah, you establish this Ordell uh, Roby character, and then it's when we get the death of Chris Tucker's character. He is so. Good. Then we get introduced to Jackie Brown. Like what? Like half hour into the movie, and then it's just quite fluid that we're following her, and then obviously introduced, uh, yeah, Max Cherry. I think yeah, slightly beforehand, and the way it all weaves yeah. together, yep. and it all feels like setting us up for this kind of money exchange sequence which when researching yeah. it i found somebody on youtube is actually like it's really good uh should definitely check it out someone called james newman has uh edited it back together in in real, In real time. time. Like,
0: when it all and happens And does, once. like,
1: split frames when it's the exact same moment and stuff like that. So, like, that, that's really fascinating to watch because, obviously, the way it plays out and, obviously, we get the... We even get the dummy run for how it would go, how, how obviously, the cops think it's yeah. going to go. And then we're told, yeah. oh, no, this is how Ordell thinks it's going to go with Jackie. And then, like, we're kind of teased a little bit of this is how Jackie and Max Cherry think it's going to go. But then... Even still, we're kind of left with doubt as to what is actually going to happen, and then there's like, yeah, there's 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 things seeded very cleverly, like where Jackie just like. Doesn't know yet that Melanie is going to step in for like there was a woman who was supposed to be doing the money. Exchange.
0: Yeah, Sharonda in that in the test run, she steals the money. Or she she dips. She's the one who does the little five card Monty. You know, taking the card away that no one sees. She does it, and it's Max who sees it, and then Jackie flips out about that. She never shows up. She never returns with this 10. Like, she takes the 10 grand and she just packs her shit and moves the fuck yeah. out of California. She is gone that night. <laughs> the only person who doesn't know his money's going to be stolen from him yes. is Ordell. The only person, to, like everyone else, is like I'm taking this motherfucker's money, and he's the only one who seems to be completely clueless throughout the whole film that everyone is trying to take his goddamn money. <laughs> I don't, know if we're supposed to feel bad for well, yeah, Ordell, well, but you kind of yeah, do. What it I a found big.
1: interesting is I was watching an interview just uh, just before we started ch- talking with Quentin Tarantino, and he his sympathies somewhat lay with Ordell. Somewhat, I think it's maybe his love for Samuel Jackson, and I, I, I imagine even despite. the foibles of his characters you can tell that like Uh, Tarantino loves them, like he probably loves uh, Hans Lander just as much as he loves Aldo Rey and it's like, it doesn't matter and it's that thing like every character is the lead in their own story and and I think what what is clever about Tarantino as a kind of filmmaker is he treats them all like, and and uses that thing that actors do a lot as well, is that nobody is a bad guy in their mind do you know what I mean? Everybody thinks they're doing the right thing and like and the way that Ordell is kind of of presented in this film is that obviously like he just thinks hey man uh, and I think there's a scene that was cut from the movie as well, where Tarantino mentioned that there was a line where Lewis say, says to says to Odell, well, he says like I'm gonna I'm gonna split out with a million dollars. He's like, you know, a million dollars won't get you that far. And he's like, it will down in the Philippines. I'm gonna move to the Philippines. I can I can get a butler for like five cents an hour in the Philippines. A million dollars to see me out for the rest of my life. And like that was the aspirations for Odell. So and that's what's clever about the film. And it's like past this sequence, you really see him. And, and I guess before that as well, Well, uh, what he does to Beaumont and stuff like that, it's like... He's an evil dude. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, he's kind
0: of... Yeah, but I think they all see them as, you know, they have their their codes. They follow their codes. And that may mean that, you know, it's it's me or you and it's not going to be me. I can tell you that kind of thing. You know, Mr. White says it in Reservoir Dogs. If it's the difference between me going to jail for 10 years or me taking you out to get through that door, you best believe I'm taking you out to get through that door. They've rationalized why they're going to do what they're going to do. And you're right. None of his characters are good or bad. They're just yeah. people. And we are flies on the wall in the days in their lives when we get to see them. And they do great things. They do terrible things. You know, Max Cherry's supposed to be a good guy. You know, he's rationalized in his mind why he's going to help Jackie. Because one, he's falling in love with her. And two, he figures, fuck or die. I don't like him. So why do I care if we steal his money? <laughs> but he's he's written guys for less. You know, you know, it's like he's helped bail out people for less shit and picked up people for doing less than what he's doing right now. So, you know, everyone in their own mind, there's, there is no black and white. There is just gray in, in the Tarantino world. Anyone at any moment can be great. Any person at any moment can be bad and can flip at any second. But this scene, Starts at four twelve in the afternoon. I do like that they put up the times when we start. They have like this is what time this they pulled them.
1: This film is great for its kind of on screen like uh you know, like the locations or like this? Yes. yes yes yeah the little
0: moments yeah the little the little uh, blurbs they throw yeah, up on like the there's screen. There's the, little the title cards. fantastic.
1: where it's like uh, something to do with like oh it's two blocks away from Western Third on like Western Hollywood or something yeah. like that or. Yeah, or the three minutes later gag that we get with uh, uh-huh. <laughs> and, yeah, <laughs> the, the Yes, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, these kind of these tight ty- these time stamps. What I find like is, is again, it's a Tarantino. Is It's like I'm I'm giving you like a literal breadcrumb here. But even still, you're watching it, and like I'd imagine there's some people like the first time this, like would have definitely been like, what, what, what's going on? Do you know what I mean? Even though like you're you're kind of. Hold back and yeah. forth, like oh, mm-hmm. uh, this is now we're earlier than we were before, and then like it's kind of when we get to that yep. third perspective that it all really starts to make sense.
0: Right? It's the magic trick. We yeah, get to see the magic trick. Right? Yeah, yeah, you yeah, know yeah. what I mean? So we're Jackie, and she's technically the magician, and so she's pulling the trick, but we don't know how it's all playing out. And then we kind of see the the sidekick in the middle one, and then Max is the guy who's the reveal. Like yeah. oh, Max knows everything that's happening. You know what I mean? So we go, this is how it all played out and how it all worked together. But sadly, the one reason I picked the middle middle one is because it's the most tragic and the funniest of probably the movie. And it's not intentionally (laughs) to be funny, but such great, acting and stuff happens. I mean, right off the gate, when we're starting to try to even get into doing this money exchange, the relationship between Lewis and Melanie sours very, very quickly in the matter of a day or two. When she tries to get him to basically rob or of his money anyways, and he doesn't, it's a catastrophe waiting to happen. So when they show up, she is basically a person who has always gotten her way and has never been told what to do. And so she leans into that. And so she's got Lewis fired up before they even make it. And when they Was get it, out of yeah. there For most of the movie Lewis is basically a pothead Like Lewis' brain is fucking fried From the <laughs> joy of the movie Especially in the scene Like right before this Like when he goes to hang up the phone Like he's sitting there waiting And the phone is just ringing And he's just like staring <laughs> off into space And then he can't really put the cord down With the cord Like he doesn't know how to do it Lewis is fucked up And then he's finally in his wits When we get to this fucking part And he's sitting there And she's still taking too long And like <laughs> his, his Ordell calls him like
1: Well, well you still fucking there And he's like Just go
0: in there And p- grab that bitch And pull I, her up." Like, I, I
1: love the fact that yeah, obviously throughout the film, like uh the, the character of Lewis looks quite disheveled and obviously like he's four days out of prison. Oh yes. And, and you get yes. like by the time we're at this at this money exchange, he's kind of really got his shit together. He's kind of shaved a little bit. He's got-
0: yes. He's finally woken up. Like he's the the haze of the pot smoke for four days is finally worn off and he's finally Clairvoyance. what's going like, on
1: it, it, it really says something to the character as well that like the kind of just getting through life he doesn't quite Understand it's all he all he understands is (laughs) this like life of crime and it's kind of that's when he's awoken and like he's got the real like kind of almost Chicano style like slick back hair (laughs) like really greased back like flicking up at the ends and so he's he's like yeah he's ready to go and I love the fact that like Ordell's halfway through speaking to him and he just like hangs up the phone yeah yeah, I got got to do this and like uh, I I do love the fact as well that he's just he's he's A fucking idiot as well, and it's 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 amazing to see Robert De Niro as well. I was trying to think like back to like Robert De Niro at this time in his career. What this would have been a couple of years off of like Heat,
0: two years past Heat. He came out in 95, this came out in 97, so he's two he, years past casino, right? yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So
0: like... And also he's a couple years past Goodfellas. So he's at the peak of his career now where people my age, like, so I'm in my mid-40s, because you're doing the cobalt Connections, so he had his big Scorsese days early in the 70s where he was basically, you know, Leonardo has now become the muse to Scorsese where De Niro was the, the original muse for Scorsese. And, you know, he's doing Mean Streets, he's doing Taxi Driver, he's doing, you know, all those great movies in the 70s, and then he kind of, he's not on the radar for I think a lot of people my age because then the 80s come and it's a weird time you know because the 80s are different movies and he does a couple of things but he's not the forefront but when he hits Goodfellas in 1990 and then from there in the 90s he gets a resurgence so when he hits here in 97 this is easily his most subdued role that he's ever played. He basically plays like Stallone does in Copland which came out the same year in 97. Stallone you're like oh that's Stallone and obviously he did in that movie as well. In fact Sylvester Stallone originally wanted to play Lewis but eventually turned it down for under reasons, he went on to start the 1997 film, Copland, for which his performance was critically acclaimed. You see De Niro and you're kind of like, man, he is really a completely different character than we're used to seeing. De Niro's usually well, the yeah. guy. He's that bad motherfucker. He's the Samuel L. Jackson in most well, he's films. he's
1: like a kind of, I don't know, he, he's like the Floyd character from True Romance like a few years down the line. Do you <laughs> know what I mean? Like, if yes. those guys... He, he's Floyd's grandfather. Yeah, if those father. guys were serious, <laughs> yeah. if those guys were actually serious <laughs> yes, criminals that's what he would have like turned into and i think like de niro's career is is really fascinating and yeah like forgive me for going off on this tangent but i just find it fascinating like yeah you mentioned like obviously i've i'm kind of in the midst of looking at all of the (laughs) of family films and stuff like that obviously yeah one of his big turns early on would have been as uh don vito corleone yep in in, number two two yeah but even before then because like over on my patreon i'm doing like a series looking at the films of brian de palma and like he was the first movie brat to ever work with robert de niro so back in like the late 60s they did two yeah they did like two free movies together Whereas like this thing of like i don't know you always think you think of de niro being the scorsese guy but it's like it i always like to like what I love about what I'm doing is finding those yeah. germs of things it's like oh there is no De Niro in The Godfather without De Palma probably finding him do you know what I mean kind of working with him first yeah,
0: yeah. reportedly Robert De Niro and Quentin Tarantino did not get along on set this probably had something to do with the fact that De Niro was not being given much to do by Tarantino regarding playing the role of Louis Garra who said very little and tended to mumble in his early scenes but gradually came out of himself as the film progressed this along with not getting paid more for the role earned the esteemed actor but in this scene, he kind of taps into, uh, because we're talking about Scorsese, he kind of taps in a little bit in this moment, the anger, and you can kind of see it, but when he was in the remake of Cape Fear. Uh So what ends up happening then is, (laughs) and God bless... Bridget Fonda, who has been getting obliterated in the news earlier this year because we hadn't really seen her in almost 25 years. Like, she's kind of disappeared since this movie. And again, we know what she looks like in this film. She is the, I call this the, she's Quentin Tarantino's Princess Leia from (laughs) Return of the Jedi. She's literally the sex pot in this film in nothing but bikinis the entire time, almost bikini tops the entire time. So, of course, she is the femme fatale. Actress Christina Applegate was originally considered for the role of Melanie Ralston, but she was under contract for the Fox sitcom Married with Children and wasn't available to play the role. She is so brilliant at pushing his motherfucking buttons the entire time. Like, she is actually getting pleasure from it. She knows that he is flustered and that she is one of the causes, and when they first get into the dress shop, and he's like yelling at her, come here, bitch, like he's just losing his shit, like he is borderline ready to kill her in the place, and she has zero give a fuck to him about this at all. I don't know if she knows how dangerous he really could be, but she thinks he's just a fuck-up. The character played by Bridget Fonda, Melanie Ralston, is based on an actual actress, Candace Rielson, who was a notorious B-movie actress known for a role in Hollywood Boulevard, and as an actress who was never reluctant to take her clothes off for a role. When They're standing there at the dress, and she looks at it and she goes, are you sweating? And he snaps to wipe his brow. She knows. She goes, I've got it. And then he goes, is this job a little too much for you? I wrote those two lines down because, you know, now I've seen this movie many times. I rewatched this scene like three times last night. One, to take notes. Two, to re-watch it. And then the third time, to just watch the background and see if I missed mm-hmm. anything. It's the second time through and I was just watching it. I mean, I laughed every time she's busting his fucking balls. Like, she is the world's worst ball buster. She just is in you, in your skin the entire fucking time. And he is just... He's boiling over. He's like, doesn't know what to do. Like He just doesn't know what to do. He knows he can't punch her or hit her. He wants to. He's trying to control a situation that he has absolutely no control. And Bridget just constantly goes after him. He's just pushing buttons the entire scene. It may be why when she finally slides in to make her break to go get the bag, which I'm assuming how it was originally supposed to go, was that they were going to leave one behind in another dressing room. Like, it's weird how Mm it all changed, but I don't think they were expecting her to come grab it. They were supposed to leave it in a different dressing room, and then Max was going to grab the other one. So when Bridget comes in, I think that throws a whole wrench in the plan, and I don't think he was expecting her to go. After the money is taken, Jackie explains to Ray that Melanie didn't have a bag when she came and stole her bag with the 50K in it while she was in the dressing room. However, Melanie and Lewis would have been on the store video entering the store with a bag and leaving with the same bag, proving that Jackie's claim was a lie. Her pushing his buttons and him being so flustered the entire time is why when he sees Max Cherry five feet from him five feet from him. He sees the bail bondsman five feet from him. It doesn't register at all. He just is so enamored and just, I love Max's little waves. Like, yeah, yeah, going? yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, But it also makes me wonder, why the fuck is Max so fucking close to, like, he should have been a little bit further back, a little more inky, because, like, there's a moment where Max himself, which as I've gone through this podcast, I've realized one thing that makes Tarantino films and characters great is they are very much human. You know, like we're talking about Goodfellas, they play characters. You know, They're, they play these these characters of Italian mobsters that have become stereotypes, you know? So we just see them as these stereotypes. And so they live these stereotypes. But when you watch this movie, Max is a, a normal person. In a regular film written by a stereotype, Max is hidden somewhere. No one sees Max. Max is a regular guy who gets caught staring at the girl that he's falling in love with in a dress and then realizes, oh, shit, the guy I'm supposed to be here, you know, not letting him see me. I see him. It's those great moments of actual human error and stupidity that make everything he does feel true, but often it makes you as the viewer go, What the fuck are well, you doing? What,
1: what I think is great about this film and especially this sequence particularly is it really tips toe that line between being like a heist movie because it's kind of like when we get that dry run of how the how the job will go and then the way that this unfolds with the three different like kind of perspectives on the money exchange, it's almost like that really gratifying thing that we obviously would get a lot more in like the Steven Soderbergh Oceans films as like the we think it's gone this way and then we kind of get the do you know I mean like the the reveal <laughs> yeah, the oh, wow. yeah, this, this is how it actually went yeah and in those it would have like like you're saying, like uh, George Clooney would be the, the kind of uh, the Max Cherry role, and he would have been totally out of sight, or we would have been shown it that it, it, it happened like that. But then, Matt, like I, I don't know, the the Lewis character, he didn't actually see Max chase or someone else or something like that. That 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 would have been the reveal of it, or some or something like bizarre like that. But the the way yeah, the way this and especially that interplay between Lewis and Melanie is like like a like a kind of yeah like a screwball comedy and it kind of like when like (laughs) what happens to melanie happens it's kind of it's a real (laughs) like bring you back down to earth because up until that moment it is funny and it's kind of yeah it's like a this absolute yeah it's a bit of a black comedy at that point yeah supposed to be like that's the thing like never throughout this film do you believe like, because you're told throughout that, like, Ordell and Lewis aren't good criminals. Like, they both serve time. Do you know what I mean? They're not like... Yes, And, like, yes. Melanie has kind of said, like, uh, Ordell's, like, not this guy that you think he is. Like, he, he, he tries to think he's something. Yeah. He, he thinks, <laughs> yeah. He He just repeats he, what yeah, he's he hearing. He thinks he's, he's his Yuri Orlov yeah. from... Uh, from <laughs> a lord of war like but he's not like <laughs> yes. and it, it, it is a no. film that like again another like slight tangent watching the opening to this and kind of that that monologue that samuel jackson has all about the guns and stuff like that there's one film i couldn't like get out of my mind was uh, Lord of War and like Nicolas Cage does that amazing mm-hmm. speech all about AK-47 and stuff yep. like that like, midway through that film yep. and it's like, oh maybe maybe that was in like uh...
0: they're not the same right so we we, we both know that. They're not the saying, but I, there's probably some homage or definitely they saw that and said, you know what? All right. How do we make this kind of as cool? How do we have Yuri say the same thing in this movie? Or it doesn't sound like what Ordell's saying, but at least it has the similar feel to it. And I think they did a great job in that film of not ripping off
1: this film, but...
0: Uh, definitely you know seeing what someone else did and you know making it their own but really i imagine it Tarantino
1: good. as well around this time cuz this would have been when the kind of the, the the characters that Yuri Orlov is like based upon like those stories probably would have been out there and stuff like that of these kind of yeah. people yeah. And like that, fat, that 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 idea of somebody who thinks they're kind of this massive like gun runner whereas <laughs> they're not they're just selling to like you know I mean, as he says, I'm selling <laughs> yes. to like it's a couple of Korean. Well, I'm selling M16 to some Koreans <laughs> for a neighborhood watch thing to to, to, yeah. to to kind of scare off the gangbangers. Scare scare yeah, the yeah, local yeah, yeah. black scare guys. The gangbangers yes. away. The, the
0: local black, yeah, so wait, crazy. <laughs> That's, I love it. <laughs> but speaking of kind of like that kind of attention to detail, what can get lost in this three-way exchange that we get to watch is in the first one. What she's hoping that, you know, again, they don't know what's going to happen to Melanie. But I th- one of the things is that they're hoping something's going to happen where they're going to get arrested or get caught, right? So when Melanie gets, if they get caught doing this, she gives Melanie the money and Melanie takes it for herself. The money that's shown in the bag is genuine currency. In the special edition features prop master Steve Joyner revealed that Quentin Tarantino insisted on authenticity. So the $500,000 in cash is actually real money and not the standard prop money used in all Hollywood films. The great thing about the second part is being able to pay attention to what's been happening before, Melanie when she comes out of the dressing room, has put the money in the front seam of her pants, which we find out later, and she's fixing it. If you don't pay attention, mm. as she's coming out, she's like fixing to make sure it's not seen and, and in there, and then she kind of hauls ass out with the bag, and that's when De Nier chases her, and then we get a great exchange. It's something like I say, there's a lot of throw, We think are throwaway lines or throwaway things that happen, but nothing in a Tarantino film is random. Nothing is like, oh, that's a happy accident. So yeah. when she comes out, like it's a thought out, so you and I might miss it if you're watching it but if you sit there with you know detectives eyes on you really investigating the scene it's there because then when we get later down when they're talking to her and they're finding out what how this all went wrong they say you know we find out what happens to me which we're going to get into and that she has in the front part of her jeans, she has ten thousand dollars of marked bills on her possession so it goes a long way to support now obviously jackie didn't know that that would end the way it did but it's us hearing her talk about it. It happens. But the moment you see it is the shot that's set up that we, when she first comes out of the dressing room and we actually see her, she's actually you know doing the pantomime of like, you know, making sure that it's not seen. It's like it's secured in her as she's walking. It's just those little nods that I love that, again, I missed it the first like 27 times I saw the film until now I'm looking at it with more intense eyes I, and I really want to yeah. pick it apart. And I, and
1: I think like the the kind of one person you need to shout out like with this this whole sequence is is the late Sally Menke and her kind of editing in this. And, uh, and it, she is so amazing. Just yeah, like like the mm-hmm. real the, like you, you could tell they had a real like kind of Scorsese film a kind of relationship and just kind of knew each other. Obviously, absolutely like, tarantino you can imagine like has the shots in his head but the way they're stitched together and kind of in each piece like because i imagine they would have just been all filmed at the same do you know what I mean they would have filmed stuff at the same yeah, time yeah. or yeah would have gone right we'll do this setup we'll do jackie kind of doing this like for her one and then we'll kind of reset pop the camera somewhere else and get it from there and to be able to like yeah, so, yeah the, the way it's kind of this whole sequence is Edited together is kind of a masterclass in how to, and it, it, even, even where this, like, and again, it's, you could imagine there would have been, like, a discussion in the edit bay when doing this, where to leave, this, like, because this is the most pivotal, like, mm-hmm. Pivotal moment
0: of the whole movie. It leads up
1: to yeah, this. It leads up to,
0: to this point to
1: see if we can get it. To leave the Melanie and Lewis story, because he's cut out of the parking lot yet, and it cuts. So obviously, like, if you can throw yourself back to first watching it, and so, like somebody hadn't watched this in a while, I was kind of like, oh shit, what does happen? Like you could almost like imagine a couple of seconds later, a couple of cop cars like screeching agro- across the exit or something like. That. You kind of don't know how it's going to play out. Yeah. And you Yeah. You, you can imagine that conversation of going, are oh, they probably had footage of Lewis like driving out of the parking lot? But they're probably like, that doesn't <laughs> that doesn't, <laughs> yeah, that doesn't create it, yeah. suspense <laughs> with it. And even even like with. Jackie's kind of sequence where it's like the cops just run up to her. We don't get any of that conversation afterwards. We're kind of, right, we're straight back into... We're into Lewis and, and Melanie.
0: Yeah, it's four twelve, and there they are. Yep, and yeah, so they the come way it
1: in. kind of like comes in and comes back out again. You are. It's like a magic trick. You're kind of like baited breath, going like, is this is this gonna work or like uh or, yeah, is the penny gonna drop or or is the house of cards gonna just flatten everywhere? Like I, I just don't know how it's gonna how yeah. it's gonna go. And I think yeah. It's, the editing choices and the kind of those just yeah, just the length of those shots and stuff like that where where they're yeah. chosen to, to start and end is just perfect.
0: Yeah, she she is definitely an extension of, of him. Like she really was. She was just an amazing extension of him. What I love about the like I said, Lewis and Bridget, or I should say Lewis and Melanie. De Niro and Bridget, they're phenomenal in the scene. So much so, like, the reactions that Bridget gives to when he, like, after, you know, he chases her down and he grabs her arm. And he's like, give me the bag. And like, she's going to rip it. Like, they're having this little tussle. And then he's like, give me the fucking bag. I'm going to punch you. I'm not going to fuck out, right? And you're like, holy shit. Like, you see her face. Again, I found nothing Mm -hmm. that, you know... I don't know what take this was, but regardless, like Bridget really does feel like he might punch him. <laughs> Funny thing is, if anyone watches it, watch the scene, listen to what we're talking about, and then go back and find it, right? Then go watch it again. There's a woman who's got to be an extra, but the way she, her reaction is, there's a part of me that feels like she didn't know she was on a movie <laughs> set. You know what I mean? Like she is standing behind them by the dresses as they come around the corner. And so she's behind them and she goes, I'm going to punch you. And she just kind of froze in there looking at them, almost like, you know, I don't know if you've ever been in those situations where like all of a sudden you find yourself out about on in the town. And and then a couple or something is having a moment, and it's one of those moments where like you're like, oh shit, am I a part of like my? Do I have to be a witness to this? Like you don't know where it's going to go, where you're not sure if it's going to get violent or what's about to happen, and you don't want to like get too involved in it because you don't really want to be sucked yep. into it, into the vortex. But I felt like that woman standing behind them is just frozen there as he's like losing, like he's about. to, I mean, I actually thought he was going to fucking punch. Her. Like the first time I saw, it, I was like oh, my God, he, Robert De Niro is going to punch Bridget Fonda in the fucking yeah, I, face right here in this department store. You I, know, I like,
1: it's one I of those moments. can't speak to this and, like... Uh, not like not to say anything liable like obviously like from (laughs) what we know of Robert De Niro he's like a guy who is very method and stuff like that I don't I don't think he ever would like hit a woman but like he probably would be happy to go to that place to actually like obviously with the consent of her to like be like this is how the scene's gonna go but like neither oh he he I mean he
0: yanks her around like like so obviously there had to be a conversation with her and maybe she didn't know but how much he would and I think it helped her acting yes. performance but he's definitely I mean he's aggressive with her he is he's the kind of aggressive you're like you see that in a store somewhere yeah, you yeah, go uh oh, yeah. oh like you almost fear for the woman's that she might get be- so be, beaten yeah, by yeah. this in, guy in all the, script, the time it would have yeah. said
1: something like Lewis grabs her or like do you know what I mean Lewis gets pissed off but then obviously like on the day it's like how far is that going to go do you know what I mean like and uh, <laughs> like yes. yeah and he probably was like well <laughs> at this point it's like, especially knowing like what he's going to do and kind of how, how ramped up he is, is probably like, yes. i fuck <laughs> over here, like, and that's, that's the thing, like, you, you're you kind of watching it going like, you're supposed to be fucking subtle guys, just like, I mean, we've seen earlier on yes. in the film, what you're supposed to do in this situation is just breeze out, like, we've, I, I, yeah. I, I think that's what's <laughs> great about this as well, is it's playing upon like a very, it's like a well worn trope in kind of movies isn't it that money exchange of just like we've all uh-huh. seen the kind of identical bags or briefcases being put next to each other and, uh-huh. and that exchange but just to see it go like horribly wrong and not with, with normal people like it's they're
0: not prof- they they say they're professional but there's nothing professional about anyone in normal, this scene at all to include but the cops
1: like it's it's all from like fault of their own and their own insecurity it's only it's only like lewis's like yeah insecurities and stuff like that that like gets into the place where like he ends up shooting her or just like being pissed (laughs) off at her where it's like all you have to do like is just walk out of there and it's like in that moment you're like of course you went to jail for a bank robbery like you were yes. probably the guy like do you know what i mean where it, it could have been an easy an easy thing of like give us the money he probably like saw someone moved and sh- like do you know what i mean fired off a shot and that's what alerted the police or something. like, like yep. you could tell you could tell like yeah it's been seeded the type of guy he is and then it's like i don't know when it, when it realizes that he's the reason it all fucked up it's like, of course he is. Do you know what I mean? Like we've been told yep. this about him that he's not he's not good at this kind of thing, even though it's all that he does.
0: <laughs> it's interesting because I in the main podcast I talked about one of the reasons also is is because of Melanie. You know, she is the Kryptonite for Ordell. Ordell should not have her a part yes. of this. Like even Lewis says this to her, like, you trust her? He goes, I don't trust Melanie, but I trust Melanie to be Melanie. And that's that's Ordell's own fault. Like Melanie is pushing his button. So Lewis should have been a professional here. But the reason he grabs her like that is because she is trying to take control of this whole situation and he doesn't trust her. And so he wants to get the bag from her. Now I have this question for you. Now I'm gonna preface this. In no stretch of the imagination, am I saying anyone should hit Or put their hands on a woman. I'm talking about the character and the scene in the film and what we know about the people. So if you were Lewis, do you think you could have handled Melanie like Ordell tells him when they finally picks him up (laughs) by just punching her in the face? He says, didn't you just hit her in the face? Clearly, he's one, we learned from Ordell that he's done that before, Mm -hmm. that she has gotten out of line in his mind. And he has obviously put his hands on her before. And that seemed to rectify whatever the issue was. Again, in no stretch of imagination, am I condoning any of this violence to women. woman? I am not at all. I'm asking based on the character. Do you think it would have been... In lewis's best interest interest to like to hit her as opposed to you know where it ends up going like because the the other alternative which we're going to get to in a second is what happens when she is finally killed, so like again, obviously you wouldn't want to hit her in the store, but like I, I don't know what would it have been in Lewis's best interest to, to do what Ordell said, just slap her and then like get her back in check and then like well, let's that, go that, or. Just- or is or is it already fucked because Melanie should not have been a part of this in the first place like Melanie should never have been trusted with this job especially if you think and you know she's already tried to get your friend to
1: rob you of your money well yeah she shouldn't have been she shouldn't have been a part of it it could have been handled a lot differently and it's like knowing what we know as an audience as well, is the fact of like she would have come to the car, like she's got, and like to look at the character of Melanie as well. It's again, it's something that's like seeded in it. We can only imagine that she's kind of been like in this let, let, let's not beat around the bush. What it is, it's kind of like this abusive relationship. Like, there's that moment where and they yes. talk about like, oh, how old were you in that photo? So I was fourteen. So obviously she's had a life of kind of being groomed by these like ne'er do wells and kind of like
0: And that Japan photo she talks about too, where we 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 don't have any context. Like she went to Japan, was she with this guy? Was she like a concubine from like it's a very You know what I mean? Like, we don't get any context of what she when she heard Lewis before they have their three-minute sex. We don't know why she's in Japan, what she went to Japan for, and who the guy is. You know, it's kind of a weird—there's a mystery around what she was doing in Japan with a man that clearly she wasn't in love with but seemed to be with, if (laughs) that makes sense. You know, we don't get— Closure. There's
1: like, there's like a lot of stuff that you kind of get the impression that she is like and even the way that um Ordell and lewis talk about her like in regards to like, where like oh did you did you fuck her like like kind of like Ordell asked him and it's like she, she <laughs> it feels like she's probably just been passed around and stuff like that and like like when when lewis asked about that photo he's like she's like oh i was 14 almost like have an impression that he probably met her at that point as well. And he's like, Oh, I thought you were 16 at least. Do you know what I mean? And that, that, that's quite, that's quite yeah, like yeah an icky, yeah, an icky creepy, aspect yeah. of it. But yeah, I think he definitely could have. Yeah, again, I don't condone violence to, uh, against women at all. But like, because obviously what he does and him shooting her and her not being in the picture is ultimately his, his demand as well. His demand. Yeah, yeah. it then puts doubt yeah. in Ordell's mind that. Uh, for yeah. all he knows melanie's sitting sitting pretty with the with the with the rest so like it's it's that seed of doubt and it is that thing of i don't know it's almost the, i guess the whole film is playing upon that thing of sometimes people can't escape who they are in a weird way do you know what i mean and the kind of like as much as you're trying yep. to like run away from do you know what I mean like yeah run away from yourself and like I don't know like even down to like the Max Cherry character like he's obviously thinks he's a righteous guy and stuff like that but I don't know what it is I imagine you probably don't have to do a lot of training to become a bail bondsman like I imagine <laughs> that he's probably got a past that we don't really know what yeah. what it is and yeah. stuff like that. And it's probably like do you know what I mean, the way he talks to Ordell about like, no, hey, if, if if you're not getting caught doing the things you're doing, like who am I to who am I to ask? <laughs> exactly, for? yeah, more power yeah, to you. Yeah. So, yeah, so I guess like yeah, none of them I don't know. It's not like preordained fate, but like they've made their beds and now they're all going to lay in them.
0: Well, Melanie may very well be, and I don't want to disparage upon any women to do this, but she seems to be a woman who uses her assets, so to speak, to have men take care of her. She's living there in Hermosa Beach. She doesn't work, and it seems like Ordell has set her up. So it seems like she's okay with it. I mean, obviously, the stuff that goes with it, but she is okay with having mm-hmm. that lifestyle and living on the beach and being a beach bum and smoking weed and not doing anything. And you feel bad for her, but at the same time, she's also made her bed and decided that's where yeah. she wanted to stay. But that being said, she is still a tough son <laughs> of a bitch because even though Lewis almost punches her in the face, as he walks by her, she knows she has got his goat there is this shit-eating smirk that comes across her face. Again, going to Isai Menke's uh, editing, she stayed with the shot long enough and also to Tarantino's directing. He let the scene finish. You know, most people just, as he walks off, all right, cut. He She gives this very short shit-eating smirk knowing that she's got him. And we cut from there to her fucking going after <laughs> his balls. In the parking lot. <laughs> and she's going out to them so good. like Because it says, if you two aren't the biggest fuck-ups I've ever met. She even breaks De Niro for a second. He does a great job of pulling it back. But when she says, when you robbed a bank, you should have to look for your car then, too. He breaks a <laughs> smile. He breaks a smile and then goes back into character. Like, she is just merciless in that parking lot. My wife loves this movie. This is her favorite Tarantino movie. And she just loves, and we have sometimes done this to each other, like when we're fucking with each other, we will say, huh, and just drag out the S, like the S, forever. It's hilarious. Like, we are just enjoying her. And, and I give De Niro credit too. He looks like he doesn't know where the fuck the yeah. car is. Like, yeah, yeah, he yeah, yeah. really truly looks like he has no idea where he is. He's trying to focus on that. He's got this woman behind him just fucking re- unrelenting on him. Just, is it over here, Lewis? How about now, Lewis? <laughs> this is the fucking so when he does eventually shoot her there is a moment where as as you can put yourself like you're kind of like I might have shot her too (laughs) like she is just at you so much like just imagine a brother or a sister anyone who's just got your goat and they just will not relent and after a moment you just you, you snap as a human being like I'm not saying again violence against anybody is okay but I'm just saying there's a moment for all human beings I don't care how good a person you think you are where someone eventually breaks you and you snap and you just give up all yeah. the good stuff about you And you turn into Lewis Gar in the parking lot Where he's like He tries to help her too He's like don't say another fucking word And he, you can see it He's almost like pleading on Yeah Just don't I, I don't want to like, He's almost like I don't want to do this And then she just can't And he's like if I don't do it now She's going to continue So he just <laughs> shoots her And like you said like It's one of the most surprising moments Not since when, you know, Travolta's character, Vincent, shoots yeah, Marvel yeah, yeah, in the face, yeah, you yeah, see yeah. it coming. You don't see this coming. You're like, oh, shit, he just fucking shot her. And, again, it's handled with such dark
1: comedy. He goes, oh, look, there it is, just yeah. like I said it was. It's yeah, yeah. like that at all. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, lo- I love, like, I, I don't know. Again, it is a character that, that feels so... And I remember the first time watching it, knowing everything I knew of Robert De Niro, it just feels like a totally different character. And just his body language, the way he's kind of stomping around <laughs> that car park. And yeah, like you say, like that the way he the way he kind of says, yeah, I, I, I told you I was here. And like 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 motions to the car and just <laughs> I don't know. That like you say, yeah, I think I think the closest character he's probably paid to that, but this toned-down version is Max Cady in Cape Fear, even down to the kind of like yeah. gnarly prison tattoos and stuff like that that he's got, but it's just yeah. Max Cady. About
0: yeah, Max Cady, who just loves yeah, what yeah, yeah, he's yeah. yeah. Max Cady was like yeah. a little less... He wasn't so edgy, he just smoked weed a lot, and then one moment he was like, you know what, I've had yeah, enough yeah, yeah. of this shit, and he snaps. You know, like I said, I don't condone the violence, but if I put myself in Lewis's spot, and it's just been nonstop, I gotta say, male or female, I may very well have also shot Melanie. You know we've all had a person in Look, our life who we've we've done the best we could, like they're just at you and you're like I don't want I'm not just not worth it, I'm not gonna do it, but there's that person who just constantly won't leave you alone, and there's a moment you just like. You you contemplate like I'm gonna break this motherfucker's <laughs> face. You know what I mean? Like, like there's a moment in your life where they just have gotten you and they've pushed you past the point where you can handle it anymore and you're like,
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna, snap. Wait, I'm it's gonna not fucking even not like, It's I'm those high of situations, right? When you're like, trying to find somewhere and like do you know what I mean? Like it's nearly closing time or something like that, or like like you're <laughs> yes. kind of like in your head being like, I, I think I know where it is and someone going, like, Are you sure you know where we're going? Are you sure you know where we're going? Like like yeah, that's similar situation. You're like, like I fucking got it all right. Like, you're like, oh, oh, leave, leave me to it.
0: And, then, and they don't realize when you've snapped, it's time to back off. They're just like, oh, you snapped. I'm gonna keep pushing you. Oh, yeah.
1: Or they're just like, it's normally not one for normal. Yeah. Normally it would be that moment where they go, oh shit, I didn't realize what I was doing was actually annoying. I just, I thought I was having fun. You're definitely not having fun in this situation. <laughs> and I think what the film does quite well is it, like, again, it, that 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 thing of, uh, saying like. Don't say another word, or I'll shoot. is is a well worn trope, and like the fact that yes. like, we, we, yeah, he and does he did it. it immediately. Yeah. Immediately,
0: don't say another word. I d- don't fucking. And she goes, okay, Lewis, Bang. And he just bang Shoots her twice. And she's are like, oh shit. And I think another thing that helps this whole thing, it was done in yeah. the mall. Most of these things that we see in the world of the caper and, and the crime genre, it's always someplace that's not. Like you, know, like you said, the oceans they're in las vegas, they're in casinos, uh, heists, you know, like with heat it's a bank it's a you know it's it's something that would normally your a jewelry store like in Reservoir Dogs, that you would normally rob. Very rarely do you have a money exchange of this level in a mall, like a crowded mall. Like, think about the danger of that if it gets into a shootout. Like, (laughs) hundreds of people, because this is the 90s. This is back when mall culture was big in America, especially, you know, before the Amazons and everything. And, like, imagine if this had gone south in a mall and there's a shootout, which – you know, I'm glad Tarantino didn't turn it into that, but you know what I mean? You're kind of like, and he shoots her in a mall uh-huh. parking lot. Just bang, bang. Just down she goes. This scene was shot at the Del Amo Fashion Center in Torrance, California, which is the sixth largest mall in the U.S. As of 2014, most of the areas in the film have now been demolished as part of a renovation that was finished in 2015.
1: I'd be remiss not to say that, yeah, like, I do think that, De Palma is the kind of one looming in the background when it comes to Tarantino, and and, and I think this is the film more so, like more so than any that kind of really like waves that De Palma flag. Probably, yeah, more so than his other ones because he kind of departs into Tarantino land after this film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he does. just yes. he definitely stretches his legs after yeah, yeah, this yeah, film. Yeah.
0: And that will do it for this month's Bible Study. I would once again like to thank my special cage tastic guest, Mr. Petros Petsilvis of the Caged In Podcast, Copeland Connections, for joining me this month. As always, I had a blast shooting the shit with him about our love of Nicolas Cage and this amazing scene from Jackie Brown. Now, you can find the link to the Caged In Podcast, Copeland Connections, as well as the show socials, in the show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials, which can also be found in the show notes as well. So be sure to join me again in two weeks as friend of the podcast, Steve Smith, returns to help me kick off a giant-sized July as he joins me to discuss Volume 1 of Tarantino's fourth movie, the Samurai Kung Fu Spaghetti Western mashup, Kill Bill, in a manner that is not only befitting this movie, but this Tarantino podcast. So until next time, this has been the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. This has been a Man with an Exceptional Beard production.